Is it working? Great. Good morning. Good morning. To three of y'all. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Glad to see you here. A um, couple of housekeeping matters before we uh, commence into the lesson. Uh, uh, is your burden heavy? We're going to lighten that baby up so we can see. Um, first housekeeping matter, last week we, we talked, I gave you a little information on how I try and put this class together, that one of the things that's very important to me, I don't know if it's because I'm a lawyer or just because I'm a nerd or just <laughs> maybe a combination of the two or maybe it's because of where I come from in life, but one of the things that's very important to me is that I try and deliver to you as accurate information as possible. One of the things I find very frustrating in life is when I read books or when I hear presentations or, or even um, uh, uh, listen to the radio sometimes to preachers or uh, uh, on TV sometimes. And I hear these wonderful, incredible statements about what they say or what they have found. And the they is never identified. And I always am a little bit cynical that they may not be there or they may not be telling it quite like it is. I am the guy who believes that 54.7% of all statistics are made up on the spot. And that's what they say. So it, it's very important to me in this class to try and give you data that is what historians would call primary source data, where you actually get to see or have the, the primary source as opposed to a, a they. So, for example, last week I, I talked about it, or maybe it was the week before, in reference to uh, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king we read about in 2 Kings. During the time of Hezekiah, he got sick to death, uh, uh, sick unto death, I mean literally sick to death. And uh, Isaiah came in response to prayer and said, God's heard your prayer, you're going to live 15 more years. Hezekiah says, can I have a sign? Isaiah says, sure. How about the sun moves forward 10 degrees or the shadow on the steps of Ahaz? Hezekiah says, nah, it's always moving forward. Make it move backwards. And uh, 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 the response was, uh, okay. And the, sh the, the shadow moves backwards 10 degrees. And when I was talking about it, I said, you know, archaeologically, astronomically, uh, we're able to establish that there were uh, uh, eclipse, uh, uh, a significant eclipse back in that time period. But the Bible doesn't tell us how God did it. Did God use light? Did he use, you know, was it something that just happened in people's uh, brains and own vision like in Pentecost? You know, everybody hears the apostle speaking in whatever tongue is native to each person. Um, you know, we don't know how God did it, but God did it. And John Adams, who's always paying attention in here, it seems to me, which is another reason I'm always a little scared of what I'm saying. Um, John Adams sent me an email, said, uh, this reminded me of your Sunday school lesson. What do you think about this? And I love getting this email from him because this is a, a great illustration of what I am talking about as we go through this class. I don't know, maybe some of you have seen this email before. Becky mentioned it to me when we went home. Becky said, you know, it seems to me that some, I have been taught that somewhere, somehow, scientists had found a, a lost day from Joshua and then some extra lost time uh, that would have been the 40 minutes out of uh, 
uh, Hezekiah. And, and then, lo and behold, John sends me an email and says, reminding me of the Sunday school lesson, uh, what do you think about this? It's an email that says, uh, it's entitled, The Missing Day. And then in big print, awesome. This is one of the most interesting things I've heard in a while. Hope you think so, too. For all the scientists out there, for all the students who are having a hard time convincing these people regarding the truth of the Bible, here's something shows God's awesome creation, and he's still in control. Did you know the space program is busy proving what's been called myth in the Bible is true? Mr. Harold Hill president of the Curtis Engine Company in Baltimore, Maryland, a consultant in the space program, relates the following development. I think one of the most amazing things God's done for us today happened recently to our astronauts and space scientists at Greenbelt, Maryland. They were checking out where the positions of the sun, moon, and planets would be a hundred and a thousand years from now. We've got to know this, so when we send a satellite out, it doesn't bump into something. So we lay out the orbits in terms of the life of the satellite, where the planets will be so the whole thing doesn't bog down. They ran the computer measurement back and forth over the centuries, and it came to a halt. The computer stopped, put up a red signal, which meant there's something wrong with either the information fed into it or with the results. They called in the service department, said, what's wrong? Well, they found there's a day missing in space in lapsed time. They scratched their heads. They tore their hair. There was no answer, which must mean they didn't have bald people working there. Finally, a Christian man, and that's just like their beard. A Christian man on the team said, you know, one time I was in Sunday school and they talked about the sun standing still. While they didn't believe him, they didn't have an answer either. So they said, show us. He got a Bible. He showed him in the book of Joshua. The astronaut said, there's the missing day. They checked the computers going back into the time, found it was close, but not close enough. They're still missing 40 minutes. As a Christian employee thought about it, he remembered somewhere in the Bible, it said the sun went backwards. Scientists told him he was out of his mind, but they got out the Bible and they read 2 Kings where it told the Hezekiah story with 10 degrees. And did you know 10 degrees is exactly 40 minutes, 23 hours and 20 minutes in Joshua, 40 minutes in 2 Kings, the missing day in the universe. Isn't it amazing? Forward this to as many people who you believe would think this is equally as cool. Now, has anybody in here ever seen or heard of that before? A lot of you. That's bogus. Okay. Professor Harold Hill in The Music Man is scamming people, but a Mr. Harold Hill with the Curtis Engine Company has no clue about any of this whatsoever. Um, uh, this idea has circulated since 1970 in this form for 33 years. The Internet's just made it explode everywhere. But it was circulating even before the Internet and has been subject to numerous articles. Uh, lots of people have contacted uh, Mr. Harold Hill uh, with the Curtis Engine Company, which, by the way, as a consultant for NASA, supplied diesel engines. Um, he wasn't a big scientist uh, working for NASA, and he has no knowledge about it at all. What's interesting is, as a bogus story, it actually goes back in time and first appeared in publication in 1936 from some guys who obviously weren't using computers and weren't talking about NASA and sending space people to the moon, but were just quoting scientists in the 1890s who had proven with beyond and, and used very much the same approach. And, and I, I can't thank John enough for sending this to me because this illustrates to me um, why we as Christians need to be very careful and why, again, it's so important to me when I stand up here and I present this or when I'm writing the text... Uh, um, to, to do the best job I can at giving you primary source data. Because if I were someone who came to be a Christian or was a skeptic 
and someone presented this to me and I did research into it, it would probably set me further from God than closer. And uh, I would love for Christianity to be something that's um, a wonderful little magic package that you open up and the magic dust just flows all over you and, and all of a sudden everything in the world makes sense. Christianity is not so. Um, is not so. Please understand, my understanding of our faith is a very simple thing. This is not a hard thing to get a hold of. But we must remember, if we go back to the very beginning of this class, there is one who is out there who is telling lies to deceive us. And he started in Genesis with Adam and Eve, and it's not like he's on vacation right now with you and me. And so I believe with the Apostle Paul that we should study to make ourselves uh, uh, aware of what Paul says to Timothy. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman having no need to be ashamed. Peter talks about having a ready defense for the gospel. I think more than ever with the internet age and, and, and the, the way we are in a sense in a post-Christian world in America, it is very important that we be biblically literate people. And by that, we understand what the Bible says and what the Bible does not say. Because it speaks not only positively, but where it does not speak, there is a message there as well that we need to understand. That's what this class is about. I got an email um, through the website. Uh, we've gotten a bunch of interesting emails. I'm going to try and keep the website up here. Uh, again, Eric and Philip do such a wonderful job with it. But uh, uh, we got an email from someone saying, okay, I don't know about downloading this and that and all of the rest, uh, but I'd love to get lessons on a CD. So we've checked into it, and we uh, are going to try and put together, if people are interested, uh, we can buy CDs extremely reasonably. Uh, we're going to try and put a package deal together that's got the CDs and the lessons and uh, uh, just do it for, for cost, which is just next to nothing. Um, so you'd get like 20 CDs uh, with 20 lessons, I think, for $10 or something uh, altogether. So um, if, if that is something that anybody's interested in, you need to start thinking about it in the back of your brain because we're going to put those gears in motion. Um, now, having said all of this, let me say one last thing because I get scared to death making these statements. And then we'll get to the lesson. Um, I do my best up here to present this material. Uh, you know, this is something I have the, the degrees in and the study and, the, and all, but... I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect, and I have no doubt. In fact, I'm really nervous about going and listening to these things because there's no telling what I accidentally said while I was up here and, and goofed up on. So um, uh, I do the best I can, the written materials the best we can, but I'm not claiming perfection in everything we do, uh, merely uh, strong efforts. Now, one last thing, and then uh, to the lesson. Occasionally, I come in here and I give you materials uh, that, that if you're interested... Uh, you should get. Put this on your Christmas list if you're so inclined. Um, everyone who wants to be a Bible student should get a copy of this. Um, this is a good reference book. It's called the New Bible. Look at that. Whoa. Okay. Let's see. The New Bible Dictionary. Now, that's nothing so bizarre about that, but what you need to know is this is put out by Tyndale, T-Y-N-D-A-L-E. It's one of the best ones. It's a second edition. They may have a third edition out by now. I've had mine for quite a while, but it's published uh, by Tyndale 
And, and it's an outstanding Bible dictionary, a reference work for you. You can look up all sorts of things in here. It doesn't just tell you what a word is, but you can look up a book of the Bible. You can look up, uh, uh, you know, I'm flipping through here uh, um, and seeing names of towns, the book of Hosea, the book of Joshua. Uh, what is a mediator where the Bible talks about it? What's the Apocrypha? Uh, wh- who were the Philistines? Uh, what is a potter? And, and what is the, the Hebrew word for, and it's got like under potter. You know, it shows all the different kinds of pottery and when they were made and all of this stuff. This is an excellent reference book, uh, much better than uh, what Professor Harold Hill will tell you. Uh, now, in the next 32 minutes, let's uh, make it through the book of First and Second Chronicles. This is a two for Sunday. You came here today. That does not mean you get to skip next week because you knocked out two and one. Uh, It does mean, though, that uh, uh, we're able to get through two books today, uh, God willing, and learn what we need to know to be biblically literate people. Um, I ask you this question as we get started. Eh, Let's wait before we get there. Let me ask you this question. Who is writing your history. Who is writing your history? Um, A lawyer came up to me uh, two weeks ago and he said, uh, Mark, I want to send you all of these cases. I said, uh, great. I like business. You know, that's to a lawyer. That's a really nice thing. And um, um, I said, uh, uh, you know, tell me about it. He said, well, I get contacted by these people all the time who have this very special Uh, disease. It's actually a mesothelioma. It's a cancer of the mesothelial cells, which is the cellophane wrap around your lung and peritoneal area. And it's a cancer that's caused by exposure to asbestos and nothing else. It's a horrible cancer. When you get it, you have six to eight months on general to live. There is no cure. There is no real treatment. And uh, uh, it's one of the things that as, as a law firm, we do a lot of. And so um, this man came up to me and he said, you know, I get a lot of people who come to me with their mesothelioma cases and I want you to handle them. And I said, I'd be delighted to. He says, well, when I tell them that it's you, do you have any kind of a brochure or something that I can give them? And I said, sure. You know, we have a law firm brochure and it tells what we are and and what we do. And I gave it to him. He says, eh, eh, eh. I said, well, you know, what's wrong? And he says, well, this isn't good enough. I said, well, you know, we don't really advertise. This is just, this is just so people can have an idea who we are. He says, no, no, no. You're going to get a phone call next week from Mickey. I said, I am? Yeah. He's going to write a book on you. I said, what? He says, it's going to cost 10 grand, but it's worth it. He's going to write a book on you. Then we'll be able to give autographed copies of your book out to people. I said, well, I don't, this, you just left me. I'm just kind of happy with what I'm doing, rowing my boat down the, the river here. And, you know, if you got some cases that want me, fine, but we don't need to go pay Mickey $10,000 to write a book on me. And uh, uh, he says, oh, it won't look like he wrote it. I said, okay, this is just, no, 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 no. You know. So anyway, we're doing it. No. Um, <laughs> um, so so uh, it, I found it very interesting. And, and it got me thinking, you know, who's writing your history? Because I want to tell you something. All of us have one. It's not anybody in here that doesn't have a history. And the most bizarre thing is the way we have managed to compartmentalize the Lord. 
Let me explain what I mean. Compartmentalize. You know what a compartment is? Okay. That's what we do to God in the 21st century and in the last of the 20th century. We say, okay, I got compartments in my life. And this compartment over here is my sports compartment. This is where I'm real into sports and I do the sports kind of stuff. This compartment over here is my family compartment. And there's a time and place for everybody in my family, and they fit in these niches. Then I have a compartment over here that's my work compartment. Please understand this is different than my family compartment. Don't get the two confused. When I'm at work, I'm a worker. When I'm with my family, I'm a family man. And then over here is my church compartment. And this is where God belongs. And this is the spiritual stuff. And when I talk over here in my church compartment, I talk differently than when I'm over here in my sports compartment. And when I talk over here in my church compartment, I talk differently than I do over here in my work compartment. I also sometimes act differently. Because I've got these various compartments. And it works out fine. Some people say, you know, like the guy who went to see the shrink and said, doctor, doctor, I'm schizophrenic. And the doctor said, that's okay, that makes four of us, come on in. You know, it, it, you know, I've got these different personalities and these different actions and these different words and these different deeds and they all fit into a nice compartment. Well, I got news for you. You can't put God in a compartment. And the Bible nowhere says you have a spiritual compartment, you plug God into your spiritual compartment, you enjoy the Lord in your spiritual compartment, but don't worry about it. He won't leak into the other areas. He'll stay there. The Bible says God's the author of your history. God is there in every part of your life. And you can try your hardest to shut Him out, but as the psalmist says... Where can I go from your presence? How can I get away from you? If I go to the end of the earth, you're there. When I wake up, you're there. When I go to sleep, you're there. I, you knew me in my mother's womb before the days of my life. Even one of them were written. You knew what they would be. This is a God who's not compartmentalized. Israel compartmentalized their God as a nation. And God would not allow it. So the question is, who wrote your history as we look at First and Second Chronicles? Let's do the mechanics first. Question. Oh, yeah. Question. What's the new Bible dictionary? And the winner is. Um, okay, background. Was it always first and second chronicles? This is biblical literacy. I mean, we're going back to the beginning. Okay? I've got my book. Oh, by the way, can we do that? Can we get to first and second chronicles? Join me, please. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Hey, that's good. Okay, has it always been 1st and 2nd Chronicles? No. Like Kings and like Samuel, originally it was one book in the Hebrew, actually one scroll. But when translated from Hebrew into Greek around 200 B.C. in what we call the Septuagint, abbreviated LXX, the Latin for 70, okay? Roman numerals for 70. Um, they stuck in a bunch of vowels and it wouldn't fit on one scroll anymore. So it became two books. 
And uh, uh, that was done in the Septuagint, LXX. In the Old Testament, if you were a Jew and you had your Hebrew Old Testament, it would be in the last division of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. The Hebrew Old Testament divided its books into three sections. You had the law. Can you all remember the second section? The prophets. And sometimes everything was just called the law and the prophets. Jesus makes reference sometimes to the law and the prophets. And he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament canon. Um, but there was a third grouping of books called other. <laughs> the, uh, the other books, the other writings, the hagiographa. And uh, those, those are the holy writings. This is, this is kind of the... Um, uh, at all, <laughs> and others. So um, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, you have your law. Those are the first five books, right? The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have the prophets, which, by the way, includes Samuel, books that we think of as history, Samuel and Kings, because those were written by prophets. And uh, then you have the other. And of the other, the very last book is... Second Chronicles, or First and Second Chronicles, right before it. Um, now, that's kind of cool, and it gives some sense to things like Luke eleven. Whoops, let me flip back. Gives some sense to things like Luke eleven fifty one. Okay, now we're going to look at that. Look at Luke eleven fifty one. This is our Lord Jesus talking. Jesus was pretty good with his Bible. Ran in the family. 1151 is, get it? You know, it's Father, Son, Holy Ghost. He was good with the Bible. Ran in the family. You know, that's all right. Okay, that's okay. I'll quit making jokes. You don't want to laugh? 1151. Um, this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, therefore, this, I'm starting with verse 50. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that's been shed since the beginning of the world. Look at the next verse. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Now, why does he say from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah? Where was Abel's blood shed? Genesis. And what's the last Hebrew book in the Hebrew Old Testament? Second Chronicles. Guess who the last guy killed is in Second Chronicles? Zechariah. So that's Jesus saying from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Um, if you wanted the cross-reference, you go to Second Chronicles 24, verse 19, right about there. Second Chronicles 24, verse 19 and 20, right in there. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's go 17, 18, 19. 19. Um, Although Yahweh sent prophets to the people to bring them back to them, though the prophets testified, they w the people wouldn't listen. So the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God commands. Why, don't you, why do you disobey Yahweh's commands? You will not prosper because... There you go. You will not prosper because you've forsaken Yahweh. He's forsaken you. But they plotted against Zechariah. By the order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. 
and that's the last prophet to be martyred. So, you know, from, from Jesus' perspective, Jesus is able to say in Luke 11, um, 51, we'll go back to it here, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that's been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. See how that makes some sense? It uh, tells you a number of things as we go through this. Um, first of all, uh, uh, we get, how do we know Chronicles is authoritative? Okay, that's going to be one of the things I'm going to cover in a little bit. And I'm not sure I put this in the PowerPoint, but just remember, Jesus references it. That's pretty good authority. Okay? Um, why are the books called Chronicles? Well, in Hebrew, they're not called that. In Hebrew, they're called Debri, I keep wanting to say Deber, which is the root of the word, Debri Hayamim. Ha means the, Yamim are days, D-A-Y-S. Um, it means the words of the days. That's the Hebrew title to the book. How did we get our title, Chronicles? Well, let me first uh, talk about this. Words here means writings. It could mean, an, deber means uh, to speak, and so it can mean an oral word, but here it can mean a written word. So these are writings, which is also what chronicles means. It's the writings. Um, uh, the days there, uh, doesn't a, a Hebrew word day, yom, does not mean 24 hours necessarily. It can, but it also can mean just a time period or an era. So we'll read about the days of King David. It's not talking about 24-hour time periods there. It's talking about an era or an age or a time period. And uh, um, so when we see here in Hebrew, Debri Hayamim, it's talking about the writings of the days or this time period. Now, the Septuagint, when the, the Hebrew scholars in Alexandria translated this Old Testament into Greek a couple hundred years B.C., they named it Paralipomenon, which means um, kind of the extra materials, the supplemental materials. Because the Hebrew translators thought what Chronicles really does is it gives the stuff that was left out of Samuel and Kings. It gives some extra material. It's like a supplement. Did anybody ever, you remember those encyclopedias that they'd have in our libraries when we were kids at schools? And they'd have like the Encyclopedia Britannica, A through Z, and then afterwards they'd have the yearbooks that served to supplement. Okay. Well, that was the thought process behind the Hebrew translators. They thought 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings had already been written. This is like supplemental material. I don't agree with that assessment of, of why the book was written necessarily. To some degree, yes, but, but not totally. Um, Jerome was a church father. Uh, um, Jerome says... Uh, I'm going to translate the Bible into Latin. Uh, I'm going to call this Chronicon Todius Divini Historiae. Okay? How many people in here took Latin? There are two of us. Homeschooled, right? Uh, that's all right. That's... Um, okay, you didn't have to take Latin to figure this one out. Chronicon means writings, right? Chronicles. We get our word chronicles. Todius. Anybody care to guess what Todius is? Total. Yeah. And we're not serial there. We mean complete. Um, Divini. Can you guess? Divine. Divine. Historii. Yeah. 
There's a total divine history written down. That's what Jerome called it. Martin Luther and the Reformation people, when they're translating the Bible, they like Jerome. And that's how eventually into our English we have just the title Chronicles for these books. It, uh, Jerome, it was a chronicle of the whole or total sacred history. Um, Luther followed Jerome. So that's how we got it. Now, next question. Where did Chronicles come from? Uh, if you want to come by my office sometime, you can find in my office the Leningrad Codex. Well, that's not true. You'd find that in Leningrad. If you wanted to come to my office, you could find pictures of the Leningrad Codex. Um, the Leningrad Codex is uh, one of the oldest uh, complete Old Testaments in Hebrew, but it dates from about 1000 A.D. Okay. So where did Chronicles come from? The Dead Sea Scrolls have a snippet of Chronicles that's been found that predates Christ. We know that Chronicles predated Christ because we find Chronicles being referenced by Jesus. We also find it being translated into the Septuagint. But where did it come from? Who is the author and why did they, or when did they write it? Let's look. Some folks believe that Ezra was the author. Ezra was a prophet in Israel after Israel got carted off to Babylon and came back. Ezra comes back with the people at one point, and, and Ezra is a prophet of God who writes a book called Ezra, uh, uh, most likely. And so one argument is that Ezra wrote it. Why is that the argument? Well, let's go to 2 Chronicles. If you've got your Bible, let's look at it, and I'll show you something. 2 Chronicles ends with this. All right, here. The Lord, the God of heaven. Uh, start at the 23rd verse. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, May Yahweh his God be with him and let him go up. Okay, y'all with me? Now, if you flip over a couple pages to Ezra, the next book in the English Old Testament, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, to fulfill the word the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to write the following. And look what it says. This is what the Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of Yahweh. Basically, the start of Ezra is quoting the end of Chronicles. And so the, the, because of that flow, uh, scholars dating back even before the time of Christ, Jewish scholars attributed the authorship of Chronicles to Ezra. But he didn't sign it. And we don't know for certain. And it's interesting uh, to read the arguments about this. Um, I don't know that it makes that much difference to folks uh, uh, in this class. But it, it's interesting because it shows how theologians discuss things. All right. Is Ezra the author? Yes and no. I put up the three most compelling arguments that can be found for each side. I give them to you now. You be the judge. You pay your money. You take your choice. Yes. Oh, look at that. Chronicles of what I just read you. Compare it with the first three, two and a half verses of Ezra. 
Looks like it must be written by the same guy. Right? Now, the no camp, for their strongest argument, they say, oh, look at the end of Chronicles and compare it with the start of Ezra. It can't be the same guy. If it was the same guy, he wouldn't have repeated himself. Who's got a clue? Next, literary styles. And I love this because this, this also shows what I'm telling you about on, on uh, primary sources. I read a, a, a couple of commentaries to, to see what their arguments were on this to get ready for this class. And one of them, commentaries, actually two of the commentaries said, you know, it's pretty clear Ezra wrote it because if you compare the literary styles of Chronicles to the literary style in Ezra, they're virtually identical. Okay? Then I read the commentaries of the people who don't think Ezra wrote it. Do you know what their number two argument was? Literary styles. <laughs> you compare the literary styles of Chronicles to the literary styles of Ezra, and they are so different that there's no way they were written by the same people. Now, the third big argument is, uh, uh, if you could see at the bottom, types of materials. Both Ezra and uh, Chronicles are concerned with genealogies and write a bunch of genealogies. They're both concerned with temple worship and how things should be done. And so there are some very similar materials. Now, the no camp, do you know what their third biggest reason is? The differences in material. Because uh, while there may be some similarities, there are some stark differences. Well, of course there are. Otherwise, it'd be the same book. Um, but it just goes to show you we don't know. And, and, you know, you look at it, but we don't have an answer. We can come closer to this question, when was it written? Okay. Now, who wrote it is important, and I'm going to come back to it. And that we don't have an answer is something that we need to, to, to continue with. By the way, this may be a dry class for you. No great stories today, but uh, we're making it through, and we've washed two books. Um, when was Chronicles written? Well, it's got to be after 500 B.C. The reason we believe that is in 538 B.C., the Jews came back under that decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. And in Chronicles itself, it gives genealogies. And it gives the genealogy of the fellow who led the Jews back out of exile. And it also gives the genealogies of several generations after him, up to his grandson. I've got sites for that in the handout, so you've got it in front of you. But it tells you that, you know, the guy came back, he's got a kid, his kid's got a kid. He could, you know, we don't have an exact date, but it's probably sometime after 500 B.C. Um, uh, in addition to that, we have, come on, um, probably written before 420 B.C. Now, there's a lot of fuss over this. I think there's good indication that somewhere around 420 B.C., Chronicles was included in an Old Testament uh, canon or grouping of holy books being put together. I also think it's got to have been written before about 330 B.C. because that's when the Greeks kind of took over. Alexander the Great and all of that kind of mess. And, and if this book was written after the Greek takeover, it would have talked about the Greek takeover because this is a history of God's people, okay, up to the time. So I'm figuring somewhere in my best bets around 480 to 500 B.C. And there's good reasons, I think, to believe that and, and to see those as probable dates. Now, if those are the dates, uh, um, or if not, I guess it wouldn't make that much difference, 
ultimately, our question is, why does this book belong in the Bible? And do we know it does? You know, why is this book reliable material? Well, before we answer that question fully, I'm going to ask one more question, and that's, where did the writer get his materials? You've got to understand, we're positing that the guy who wrote this wrote it around 450 or 480 or 500 B.C. How does he know what happened to David 600 years earlier? How does he know how good the genealogies are? Please understand this book itself starts with genealogies going back to Adam. If you break apart 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it can break up into four basic sessions, the sections. The first nine chapters deal with genealogies starting with Adam and tra tracing through generations all the way up to the return from exile of the Jews, 400 and, uh, or 538 B.C. and afterwards. So uh, that's the first nine chapters. Then the rest of First Chronicles, the book itself, deals with uh, uh, the monarchy up through David. Second Chronicles, the first nine chapters, deals with Solomon. And then the rest of Second Chronicles deals with the history of the people of uh, Ju Judah after Solomon up to the return from exile. So how does a guy get that kind of knowledge to put it in a book like this? Well, the, the answer to that question is, uh, is multifold. First of all, there's no question as you read it that he's using written genealogies that the people themselves kept track. And please understand, um, uh, how many of you have met uh, uh, an Amorite lately? Okay, you'll recall the Amorites, they were inhabitants of Canaan while the Jews were in uh, Egypt. And God said, I'm going to keep you there for 400 years till the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. Remember? I think Edward talked about that one of the times he was filling in. Um, so none of y'all met any Amorites? Oh, how about some Edomites? Those guys, man, they caused us so much trouble back then. How many of y'all have met Edomites lately? Really? All right, not just lately. Like, say, in the last week or two. Okay, I'm not getting a big show of hands here. Um, how many of you have ever met anybody who is Jewish? Oh, all of you. Well, gee, they were all Semitic people living in the same time, in the same era, in the same part of the world. How come you've met Jewish people but no one's met Amorites or Edomites? I would suggest to you that the Jewish people have been told from the inception of their race, Abraham himself, that they are a chosen people, and through the lineage and genealogy of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that suggestion was so important that they kept track of their heritage. Even when as a country they did not exist, even when they're in captivity. And so the writer of Chronicles is able to access some of that written material. He also accesses letters of Sennacherib. He also accesses Cyrus's decree, which we read about. They had some temple plans he was able to look at to see what David's plans were for the temple. He had poems he accessed. He had histories and written prophecies he accessed. And most importantly, this is a book written by one who has God's Spirit. And God's Spirit came very specially upon people in the Old Testament times 
certain people received God's Spirit in a way where they were able to speak the words of the Lord. So you've got a fellow who's got access to a lot of written materials. By the way, he had access to Samuel and Kings because he quotes from those books as well. So you've got a fellow who has access. He had access, I'm sure, to the law. You have a fellow who's got access to these things and he puts this together under God's divine guidance. And that is why Chronicles is in the canon. By canon, we're talking about, it comes from a Greek word, K-A-N-O-N, well actually Kappa, Alpha, Nu, Omicron, Nu. Canon, and it means a, a rule, like a, a, a ruler rule or a, a measuring stick rule. And, and canon, when we talk about canon with the Bible, we're not talking about shooting the Bible out with uh, uh, gunpowder. It's not that kind of a canon. We're talking about, that would have two ends, I think. We're talking about uh, a canon as why is it authority? Why is it scripture? Um, well, we consider it in the church canon because of a number of reasons. First of all, it was in the Old Testament canon. Second of all, when Paul writes Timothy and he says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and training, rebuke and all of these things, Paul's talking about all scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament there. Paul viewed it as inspired. Um, the New Testament quotes it. If you want to go back and check, Acts 26, 17 quotes 1 Chronicles. These are important questions because we will reach a point in this class, God willing, where we hit the apocrypha. And the question will be raised by me to you, why do the Catholics include the Apocrypha in their canon, yet Martin Luther decided and the Protestant Reformation decided, no, we will not include the Apocrypha. So when you go to buy a Bible, if you buy a Catholic Bible, it's going to have a bunch of extra books in the middle that we do not have. Now that decision is made to include or not include in terms of Luther and the Reformation, were made by people. We have people who decide when we hit the Gospel of Mark, you'll find a footnote. Uh, some Bibles even bigger than a footnote for the last half of the 16th chapter because most scholars don't think it was in the original. And these are questions that are legitimate questions for us to ask and issues we need to know about. So um, uh, anyway, for what it's worth... The New Testament quotes Chronicles. That's one of the major reasons that I find Chronicles in the canon for me as opposed to books of the Apocrypha, which are not quoted in the New Testament. We'll get to that in another day. Um, canon, I've said, we've gone through that. Uh, the material, why was it written? And, and let's close with these, these matters. Chronicles was written to convey the idea that Yahweh is not just sitting by watching everybody's history be written. This goes for you and it goes for me. Let me find something better here. Uh, we've sort of talked about that. We're skipping, skipping, skipping. Um, what, what we find presented in Chronicles is God is an active part in our history. Things don't happen in various compartments without God being there. God is not some enigma that we can't understand. God's involvement in our life is not something beyond our reach. It's something that's real. Becky and I were at a dinner party last night. I had a chance to visit with a fellow there. Uh, uh, and he was telling me how over the last three years, God has moved in his life in events that to many people would seem to be just 
different here and different there, different here. And yet he says, God took all these different things and he worked together in them to move me in a place where I realize he's the thing I need more than anything else in my life. Uh, I don't think Pat would mind me saying that, that Pat and I had a chance to get to, to talk some over some issues he was having at his business. And he just gave those issues up to the Lord, even though it was the business compartment. And he's able to tell me even again this morning, it's just incredible to me how God works in all of the areas of my life and how he worked through those problems. That's what we see the writer of Chronicles trying to convey to the people. He's speaking to people who've just spent 80 years in Babylon. Generations have gone by. They've written songs. You read the Psalms. There's a Psalm that says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept. And we hung our harps. And people said to us, sing us one of them Jerusalem songs. How can we sing the songs of Jerusalem when we're in a foreign land? Our heart pines for Jerusalem. We miss Jerusalem. And blessed will be the day when someone does to you what you did to us in Jerusalem. Taking our babies and throwing them against the rocks and cracking their skulls open. And you want us to sing those songs. The Bible's harsh okay, in places. Now, the writer of Chronicles says, okay, people, you have come back. You will not be dispersed like the Amorites. You will not be dispersed like the Edomites. You have come back because God's hand is in your history. And God's hand has been in your history for the last umpteen decades that you've been in Babylon. And we can go back and see why you went. And so let's look at the material in Kings. Let's look at the material in Samuel and let's see how God was involved. In Kings we read that Pharaoh Shishak invaded when Rehoboam was king. That Asa got ill. That Uzziah got leprosy. Chronicles comes back and explains the reason Shishak invaded was because Rehoboam's sin. The reason Asa got ill was because of a distrust and oppression he had and executed upon the people. The reason Uzziah got leprosy was because of his invasion into the temple. And so we see the writer of Chronicles telling people that in our history, God's been involved. It's not just random events that happen. God has been involved. And that's what we get out of the book of Chronicles. Now, if you're reading Chronicles... Yahweh takes center stage, you'll see that Yahweh's behind events, whether they're economic, social, sociological, uh, uh, political, whatever they are. Um, ah, one last point that I make here and then I'll, I'm summing up. There are big blocks missing out of the histories. And, and theologians wonder why and they write on why and everybody comes up with their own theory. I've come up with mine. Um, it doesn't have big blocks of what happened to David. David takes up chapter after chapter after chapter, but it doesn't tell anything about his sin with Bathsheba. It doesn't tell anything about certain fights among his sons and the rebellions. Um, Solomon gets nine chapters, but it doesn't tell anything about his foreign marriages and how that led him into idolatry. And those are surprising to a lot of people because in the... In, in, oh, it doesn't say anything at all about northern Israel. Once the kingdom split... Northern Israel is not even mentioned. And the question for scholars is, why? 
And they come up with all these incredible, elaborate explanations. Um, mine's not so incredible or elaborate. Mine's pretty simple. The purpose of the writer of Chronicles is to say God's the author of your history and look how God's worked. Okay. If you go back to the Bathsheba story, if you go back to Solomon and his foreign wives, if you go back to the Israeli northern rebellion against God, those consequences are very clearly marked out in Kings and in Samuels. It very clearly says, David, because of your sin with Bathsheba, here's what's going to happen. Solomon, because of his foreign marriages and the idolatry, here's what's going to happen. The kingdom's going to be split. You know, God, God, God wasn't absent in those passages. To that extent, I do see it as a supplement of Scripture, but, but uh, what you wind up with in Chronicles, oh, I've left this out. Um, in your written materials, if you want to take time, look at some of the Scriptures that are used over and over in Chronicles. Seeking God is used. A perfect heart, that's something that's only referenced 15 times in the Old Testament. Nine of them are in Chronicles. Because again, the writer is really faithfulness, forsaking Yahweh. The writer is really trying to emphasize these points that I send you home. And that is, we have a God of history. And you don't need Mickey to take $10,000 to write your history. Because you have sovereign Yahweh. Do not think that you are a creature of chance. You were created by God for a reason. Do not think you can run from God because He is there before you run and get there yourself. You can ignore Him. We can choose the road we want to walk. We can choose to compartmentalize and play little games. But God's in every compartment. And God is in your history. And I just urge you, encourage you, it wasn't only a God of history then, he's a God of history now. There's nothing beyond his control. There is not anyone in here with a problem too big for God. There's just not. Do you realize, I mean, think about it. He truly knows what your name is. The creator of everything knows your name. And he knows the number of hairs on your head. Some of you, that's not a big deal. <laughs> But for most, it is. He knows when a sparrow falls. He loves you, and he wants the best for you and for me. And that's, that's pretty good. And a good heart and a faithful life is going to lead us into the happiness and joy that he has for us. Rebellion and sin will lead us into misery. That's just the way it is. The reason God wants you to be good and to be holy is because it's the best way for you to have a full, happy life and walk in His will. The reason God doesn't want you to live in sin is because it leads to misery. The same reason He doesn't want you to stick your hand in fire. It burns. That's the result. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you very much for the messages you've given us in your word. Lord, we confess your word is a complex, wondrous book uh, that, that has so many things to say. And, and uh, Lord, I'm convinced we could all spend our cumulative lifetimes in it and still each day find something new and fresh and wondrous. Uh, your infiniteness is found in our Bibles, Lord. And in that we are in wonderment and awe 
It is my prayer that as we go through this class, you will continue to bless us with a very real understanding of how your word for the ages is your word for us today. In Jesus we pray, amen.